Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography Podcast. Today, my guest is Marsha Martin. She is a prolific influencer, the CEO and executive trainer of Marsha Martin Productions, LLC, and an executive and life coach. Welcome, Marsha. I am so excited and happy to have you here. We've been planning this for a while, so it's lovely to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm happy to be here, too, and I'm just honored that you would have me on your podcast, so thank you very much. Oh, my gosh, Marsha. Honestly, the honor and pleasure is all mine. I am so grateful to be connected to you and to be able to be here with you and and share a little bit about your story and your journey and the beautiful light you put out into the world through all the amazing work that you do. Thank you. So with all of that being said and all these titles or hats that you wear, I know through conversations with you previously that you are one hell of a busy woman and wear a lot of hats that I've mentioned here. In addition to the above mentioned titles and hats, it's it's quite an extensive resume. How do you find the time for all of this and how do you prioritize? How important is prioritization and organization for you? Well, I'm a very organized individual. I was taught that as a young girl Mm -hmm. by many of my mentors. So I'm quite organized. In fact, I usually call myself a hoarder, but an organized hoarder because... (laughs) I keep track of every photo I've ever taken, every file I've ever written, every note that I've ever jotted down, and every letter I've ever received. But time is a matter of priority. It's not so much that I wear many hats at once. Mm -hmm. I have had many hats, and I've built many organizations and businesses and worked all over the globe and done many different kinds of things. So it's not like I do all of that at the same time. Time. So how I organize things is I look at what am I committed to and what is the focus? What is it I want to accomplish? And from there, then I know I have to organize that into time. And I think that's something that people don't realize about organization is time management is pretty simple because there's two things that exist. One is there's 24 hours in the day. That's never going to change. And if it changes or you know of a way it does, you let me know so we could bottle that. (laughs) And the other is that you have as many options to spend your time on as you can be imaginative to create. So the real task at hand is what do you choose to do in those 24 hours? And I base that on what I choose to accomplish. Love it. Beautiful explanation. So with the hats that you wear, and as you said, you don't wear them all at once, but what does your morning routine look like? My morning routine is different now than it has been in the past because I'm not running an organization in terms of having, you know, at times I've had a staff of 5,000, at times I've had a staff of 300, at times I've had a staff of 20. And so the day would be different. It's me. I'm independently self-employed. I run my business as a consulting entity and a training entity, and I'm the main trainer. So I just have to take care of me. And the luxury of getting older allows me to do a little more fun things for myself than maybe I would have done in the past being a, a workaholic and an addict to producing results. So in the morning, I enjoy getting my emails done from bed and having my coffee. I love that time and playing with the kitties. And I make sure that each day I have some time to exercise, some time to meditate, and then some time to play, some time to do something that makes me beautiful. 
And then the rest is organized. What do I want to accomplish in terms of results I have to produce? Sometimes I'm writing a training. Sometimes I'm leading a training. Sometimes I'm coaching on Zoom. Sometimes I'm making phone calls. So all of that together. I love that. That all ties back into the organization and prioritization and the importance of that and the importance of prioritizing you, which is the most important thing. Yes. The older I get, the more I tend to put myself at the top of the list. I love that. I would love to know, what were you doing for a living before you made the jump into entrepreneurship? Well, I've never not been an entrepreneur. Okay. My story is very unique, I think, my life path. When I was 12, I read a book called Atlas Shrugged by Anne Wind. And if you've ever read that book, you know that usually a 12-year-old doesn't pick it up and doesn't even understand it. But it changed my life. And it made me realize I was powerful and I could do anything and I could go any place. And I was a woman and I had power. And so it's kind of started there. And then by the time I was in my late teens, my aunt, who was a clairvoyant healer and an esoteric astrologist, so she healed people. She worked in a lot of meditative and metaphysics kinds of arts. She understood astrology, the bigger aspect of astrology, not read your astrology thing today, but how we're all connected by energy and how everything is affected by energetic forces and that you could express what can happen and how it is and what the purpose of it is through those understanding of those forces. And I interned with her. So I learned how to channel my own energy, how to meditate and how to heal, which was quite extraordinary for a 19 year old kid who, you know, But it gave me a different perspective. And she always said that if you really wanted to be successful in life, you had to understand all the world religions and all the major philosophers, because she said God was always the same, no matter what. But each individual had a different perspective of how they experienced God. And so it was like learning a foreign language to be able to talk to someone about who they thought they were and what they meant to understand their particular religious philosophy. So I studied the major religions and I studied all the major philosophers and the thinkers in the world. And so that was kind of my foundation. And I went out in the world thinking, I can do anything. I'm supposed to do something great and I'll be guided by the forces of the universe. So I pretty much landed in the perfect spot at that time with that kind of philosophy, which was San Francisco in the early 70s, flower children and hippies and the best of the best. And we're all one and let's all live together and talk together and, you know, the war together and all of that. And I went to a seminar, the first seminar that Werner Erhard had ever led of an organization that he was training in and his first time he had trained called Mind Dynamics. Now at that time, just so you know, I was the assistant to the head of the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange during the day. It was a miracle I got that job. In fact, the recruiter called me up the day I interviewed and she said, Marsha, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have sent you on that interview. You have no qualities. You have no experience. And I don't even know why I did that. But for me, when I met that man and I went into the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange, I said to myself, this is my job. Oh, my God, I found my journey. This is where I'm going to make my first little impact in the world. And I'm going to learn all about stocks and bonds. And it was very exciting. So I was anticipating that she would call me and tell me I had the job. It was quite a letdown and a really kind of blindsided, what kind of feeling. And I remember putting the phone down and just screaming out to something. I don't even know what, you know, in the air kind of, that's my job. (laughs) You give it to me. You give it to me now. And what happened was so amazing because the phone rang. My hand was still on the phone and I picked it up and said, hello. And it was this girl again, the recruiter. And she was stuttering and she said, I'm not sure what just happened and how I could tell you this, but he just called me back and said he changed his mind and he's not going to have the other person he wants you instead. So I was like, thank you. That's better. Okay, let's get going here. You just can't make this shit up. (laughs) So during the day, I was the assistant to the head of the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange. And then during the night, I was a good dancer in the mission district of San Francisco. I had a stage and a band and I had my little mesh nylon stockings and high heels. And thank goodness it wasn't topless at that time, but it was really a fun gig. I just danced all night and had a great time and then did stocks and bonds the next day. So I was like any other young person, which was I got a job. And then I went to the seminar 
And I said to myself, I like what this man is saying because it lined up with what my aunt had taught me about how the mind works and how emotions work and how human beings are actually very powerful and responsible for their futures and they can create their own destinies. And I felt like this man, Werner Erhard, in this seminar that he was leading, and this was the first guest seminar he'd ever led, and I happened to be there, of course, which now I always say I'm kind of like the Forrest Gump of transformation. I just happened to be at the right time, at the right place, at the right time, which is, you know, the changes and the transformational kind of culture points of every piece that I've been involved with during my lifetime. So I said to myself, I better take this training because I had this vision that this would reach the masses. And it was an actual vision. I was walking down Geary Street after the guest seminar, and it felt like this bubble came out of my stomach, literally, and this imaginary kind of thing opened up like a movie in front of me, and I saw millions of people taking this training. And I was like, whoa, what's this? (laughs) I've never had a vision before. And so I, of course, went to the training, took the training. And within a few weeks of that, Werner essentially came to me and said, you're in charge of marketing and because there were only five of us or so that were running it at that time. Right. And we started this company, Werner founded it and there were founding members, which I was one. It went from being my dynamics to November of 1971. We created EST, Earhart Seminars Training, which later became Landmark Forum. Landmark Forum today is the largest personal educational company development company in the world. Right. Uh-huh. So I became, you know, there's only a few of us, so we had to divvy up what the titles were, I'm sure. Werner made me a senior vice president on the board of directors and head of communication registration. And he said to me, because by this time we had 20 graduates, 20, there was like the first seminar, there's 20 of us as graduates and only a couple of us that were on the phones enrolling people or doing leading trainings, right? So he said, Marsha, your job is from whatever needs to happen mm-hmm. from the time somebody does not know anything at all about EST until they're sitting in the training taking it. So I went into my office and it wasn't really an office, it was a bedroom at the time. <laughs> I put all of these big flip charts up on the wall my organizational chart, because I figured, okay, if it starts with you've never heard about it, then there has to be a PR division, someone that can get the word out that a body of interest and marketing kinds of things. And then you have to have sales, and then you have to have marketing, and you have to have registration, and you have to have production, because you're going to have events, and then you have to have a training department, you have to have a creative department that makes the materials that hands out to the people that does, you know, that the people that are selling it can show them. I just made this huge organizational chart, and I put my name in every box, except one. Neil Rogan was my copywriter. And so (laughs) it turned out to be a brilliant move because then when I hired people, I knew what their job really was because I'd already broken it down. Yeah, you laid it all out. Yeah. So we went from those original 20 people in the next 10 years when I was senior vice president and head of communication registration responsible for filling the events and training the trainers and sales and bringing the graduates in and running those kinds of programs to millions of of graduates worldwide and hundreds of senders. So I went from, I had one person, my copywriter in my division to 5,000 by the time I left across on my staff. And when I left the organization, they divided my job into nine divisions (laughs) and made, gave it to nine people. So from the beginning, I've been an entrepreneur. And then it was an extraordinary time after that because I was famous. (laughs) Everybody knew me. I mean, in the 70s and 80s in Earhart Seminars Training and in Landmark Forum, we had presidents and prime ministers and actresses and actors and famous scientists and doctors and physicians and on the best of all of the people in the world taking this training. It was that popular and that impactful. I've never had to market my skills or my products. People have always come to me and found me from the time. So from there, it was people that would come and say, will you help me do this? Will you help me do that? So I've built several organizations. And then because I was a pioneer in the human potential movement, I'm kind of the godmother 
<laughs> you know, I'm like anybody who's been a trainer has been trained by me at one point in their life or trained right. by me that's been trained by me or right. trained by someone that was trained by me. And so when Jack Canfield, who's a great friend of mine who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul series along with Mark, well, Jack said, let's put together a transformational leadership council. And, you know, the first two thirds of the people that were involved in that came from me. <laughs> I sponsored them because they were my pals and it just has grown from there. And then uh, when I got into corporate training, I took a lot of this personal development and how the mind works and how your emotions work and what you need to do to really be an effective human being into the coaching world and into the corporate world. And that's what I love doing now. I love working with big time executives who think they're really hot <laughs> shit. And then I spar with them and they go, maybe I don't know it all. You take it down a couple of pegs. <laughs> yeah, and, and also expand them a couple of pegs. I just got yeah. done doing a training for 45 executives in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. Mm -hmm. And literally at one of the barbecues afterwards, one of the executives came up to me and he just said, I can't even tell you how much I have to thank you because you did more than just teach me leadership and communication. He said, you changed my life and you reminded me who I was. And then he started crying wow. and he said he had called his wife the night before and told her all that he had gotten and now who he felt he was and what he wanted to do with his life and how he was more effective. And she was crying. So it's just such an amazing journey. No kidding. Holy yeah. shit. What a training ground though you had. Like unbelievable. Oh yeah. I feel I'm the most trained person in the entire universe. <laughs> You know who my mentors were? First, Werner Erhard, one of the greatest thinkers of all time. Very scandalous at times. <laughs> but if you knew the man, you would know that he was brilliant and made a remarkable impact and contribution to humankind. And as a result of being a part of that organization and the kinds of people that we had, I got to be mentored by Buckminster Fuller. Werner would call me and say, hey, I just met this person and I want to introduce them to the graduates. And that would mean that I needed to put events together. We would right. have to have special guest seminars with 2,500 to 5,000 people apiece, 10 or 12 across the country. And that would mean that the person we were introducing, I would get to introduce at those events along with right. Homer. And I would get to be with them holding their hand as we traveled. So Buckminster yeah. Fuller. And then my other mentors were Warren Bennis one of the great leadership gurus of all time. Mm -hmm. Peter Drucker, another great business management guru of all mm -hmm. time. Jerry Weintraub, one of the godfathers of Hollywood and producers yeah. and unbelievable, taught me how to make films, taught me how to make movies, taught me about Hollywood. Just amazing. And John Denver, just some great mentors that taught me so many different aspects of life that I just... I think now what I do is I just pass on everything I learned from so many different people and so many different places. Incredible. All the knowledge you've gained through conversation, through mentoring from these people that you now spread out amongst the people that you work with. It's like <laughs> my, my mind is blown. <laughs> I know. It's really funny, isn't it? It is. Marsha, what would you say is your greatest strength as a leadership coach? I would say there's a couple things. First of all, I'm present. I'm actually awake. I'm in the moment. And what that means is a couple things. First of all, I'm here. So people get that I'm here and they get that I get them. But more than that, I can see what's so in the moment and act appropriately rather than being caught in my head or my assumptions and doing what I think should have been done. And I think that's huge part of why I'm successful. The other is I really like to have fun. I mean, I just think it should be fun. And I think people are beautiful and delicious and amazing. And I think life is a joke. You just have to be able to stand back far enough to see the punchline <laughs> involved with it. It seems very serious, but if you can stand back and look at yourself doing what you're doing while you're shooting yourself in the foot, it's very humorous, right? We, we have to be able to laugh at ourselves. Yeah. We have to. And also I'm flexible and I enjoy other points of views. I enjoy seeing how people see. I'm not right. stuck in my point of view. I can certainly sell my point of view and right. I'm good at it, but I'm not stuck in it. 
if you come up with a point of view that when I look at it, I go, wow, that seems to work better, or that could be a possibility, or that's worth trying, then I'm not stuck in having to be right about the fact that I know the answer. I'm willing to say, yeah, I I fucked up and did it wrong or could do it better. So let's do it your way. I think those are some of the things that make me perhaps successful. What would you say is the most important quality or skill set in a leadership coach? I would say presence. Presence. Yeah. I mean, a person has to be present. And then to understand the way it is and to be willing to allow it to be the way it is rather than wanting it to be a different way. So if you listen to people speak, what they will say is, it shouldn't be this way. Well, when you're looking at why it shouldn't be that way or the way it shouldn't be and what way it should be, you're missing what's so. And the only place that you can move is from wherever you are. So you better know what's so if you're going to move to any other new place. (laughs) And what's so sometimes isn't nice. It isn't comfortable. It isn't fun. It isn't any of those things. We do wish it were a different way. It isn't. And we don't go out and argue with the river that it's water. And we don't go out and get pissed off at a tree because it's where it is and it has leaves. We don't yell at a rock because it's hard. There are certain things that we just accept as so, and then we move from there accordingly. But we get pissed off when somebody's being an asshole, even though it was predictable. Most people have been assholes for the last 10 years of their life. So why would we expect anything different in this moment? And just to allow it to be the way it is so that you can perhaps then move to a way that you want it to be. And also I find that when you allow a person to be the way that they are and accept them for that, rather than trying to change them, then they're more willing to move. It's very Very interesting. interesting Perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. Nobody's going to change if you say you have to. No. They're going to put their their feet in the ground and say, I'm not going to change and you can't make me. So I look at the world through a lens of what works rather than what I agree with or what's right or wrong. And most people look at the world through what's right and wrong. And that's depending on whatever, whoever told them what was right or wrong in the first place. And I got to tell you, there's 7 billion people on the planet and probably you didn't get the one mother and father who had it right. So it's like ridiculous at the world that way. Because you're just looking at it through a lens of an assumption that somebody else gave you. And a better way that works better is to say, okay, here's what I believe. Here's the way I think it should be. Does it work? Am I getting the results that I actually want? Or am I not? And if I'm not, well, then, oh, I get it. Maybe I should change my point of view. Maybe I should change my assumption. Do you see? It's much easier that way. For sure. What would you say is the process in your mind that best supports leadership development? Well, that's a good question. I think leadership development has to start with really appreciating a person wherever they are. Meeting them where they're at. Yeah, and and not just meeting them. Really enjoying, appreciating, allowing, considering that it's right for them rather than coming from you need to be developed. So I think that way of being with someone, which is really love, it's just allowing a person to show up the way they show up. Say hello to that rather than, hello, I think you should change. <laughs> it's really simple when you think about it. It's very simple and very profound. And it's yeah. not so easy, but it is simple. Because human beings are thrown to being right, looking good, and knowing the answer. So, you know, that's a human being thing. You don't get up in the morning and say, today, I want to look like shit. I don't <laughs> want to know anything. I want to be wrong about it all. I want to look like a jerk can't wait for the day. You get your act together and you put your pretenses on and you go out armed to make it work. Even if you pretend, mostly it is a pretense your whole day, right? For sure. So you're thrown to that, to being right, to looking good, to knowing the answer. And so it's hard for people to say, I'm wrong. And I apologize. And it's hard for people to say, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So I'm going to try anything. And it's okay with me if I look like a jerk and I make a mistake and I, you know, mess it all up. So you have to understand the vehicle and the thing you're dealing with. But you also, you got to know that it is okay to be wrong. It's okay to not know the all, all the answers. You're a fucking human being. You yeah. don't know everything, period. But sit down and talk to someone and see if they come from a place that it's okay. 
yeah, most people don't. And even when you know that's the truth, you don't want to be wrong. Yeah, for sure. That's ego getting in the way. Yeah. You've got a mind to deal with. So the mind, that's another thing. That's like the enemy's coming over the back fence. Don't treat it like a friend. It's the enemy. Get your gun out and shoot it. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to discipline that sucker. Most people's minds are juvenile delinquents. (laughs) So they they haven't been trained. They don't train their mind. And that's really, that's like not training a kid. And then they become a teenager. Oh, my God. What is one tip or takeaway that listeners could implement immediately to start stepping into and embracing their inner leader and begin to own that? I think one thing is to learn about the nature of being centered. Centered is when you're open, you're present, and you're connected. So when you're not centered, you're angry, you're upset, you're off-center. Most people act when they're off-center. So you get frustrated or stressed out because of a phone call that didn't go the way you wanted to. And the first thing you do is pick up the phone to make the next phone call. Or you come out of a meeting and nothing happened in that meeting, or you got told you're going to lose your job or something bad happened and you come out all stressed out and not centered and you go home and talk to your wife in that mood. And when you're not centered, you can't make choices. What you do is react. Because what being off-centered really is to explain to someone how they experience. Most people think the way they experience is that something outside of them happens and that makes them a particular way or makes them do a particular thing or feel some way. And you can hear that in people's language. They'll say, oh, that made me angry. You're making me sad. Well, that's not how it works. How it works is you have till about the time you're 10 years old to accumulate all the information you need to know or your mind thinks you need to know to be able to make every decision the rest of your life. And you store those little decisions in little capsules of, if this ever happens again, now we know what to do. And it's determined what you do by the fact the mind says, do what you did then because you survived. Okay, well, if you get, you're two years old and some dog comes up against you and knocks you over and you thought it was your friend and he is your friend. He just wants to lick you in the face and the hot breath and the licky lick and the fur of his body and you hit your head and you feel and you strike out and you don't want this and you scream and you resist. Well, the mind says, okay, let's save that because we might have that happen again and we know now what to do. We strike out, we get upset, we yell and scream, we throw a fuss, we whatever, because it worked because we're still here. Well, you're 20 years old later and some boy wants to kiss you and he has a leather jacket on with a fur collar and he gets close to you with his hot breath and his wet tongue. And the mind says, same, 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 same. And it gets triggered, that old incident. If that were making you, you certainly wouldn't yell at him. You'd get a little closer. This is what you've been trying to figure out how to get this thing to happen for a while. But what happens is the event outside triggers an old earlier, similar event. And the way the mind organizes and sorts its information is it determines if it's the same by a certain formula. And the formula is, well, if it looks like it or sounds like it or smells like it or tastes like it, or even worse, you think it might at some point look like it, sound like it, taste like it, then the mind says it is it. And that's what's so crazy funny, right? That's the joke is you're going to get triggered, wake up and something's going to trigger you, right? But the capacity for you to know when you're triggered, which causes a reaction, it's like being on automatic. It's a default. But you just pull up, you know, the times you've said things and you say to yourself while you're saying them, I shouldn't be saying this, right? Because you know, this is not good. This is not good. But you can't help yourself because you're on automatic. You're triggered. Once you learn that, then you realize if you're triggered or off center, you're reacting. And the way to be successful in life is to choose. Choose your response. And even if you only have one choice in life, you at least have the choice that you can choose how you want to respond to whatever is the incident that you're experiencing. You may not be able to choose where you're at or what you're doing, but you can choose how to respond to that experience, but you can't choose if you're triggered. So the biggest thing I can tell people is learn to center first before you act. That is above all else. 
And then you'll start noticing how often you're off center and how often you get triggered. You go, oh, I got a center. I got a center. Once you get that, it's like you're able now to ride the surfboard. And that's what life is like. It's a surfboard coming in on a wave. And sometimes the waves are big. And it's not that they're bad waves. People say, I had a bad day. What the fuck does that mean? It means there were a lot of things going on and you had to handle a lot of things at once. It doesn't mean it was bad or good. It just means it was that kind of a day. Big waves. Hold on. Stay present. Be thinking about why it's this way because they're going to knock you off the surfboard then. Just hold on for dear life. Do whatever you can to stay on and get back on when you get off. There you go. <laughs> and you can't do that if you're not in present time. So all of that together is center first, then act. I love it. <laughs> Great analogies, Marsha. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Marsha Martin Productions. What was the inspiration behind starting the company? And can you share a little bit about the company and all the wonderful programs and work you do through the company? Well, the, <laughs> most of the inspirations around anything I've done have been that I was in love with a man. <laughs> I know. It's as simple as that. I left S. Oh, here's a funny story for you. I left S and I was in love with a man by the name of Eric and he was 10 years younger than me. So he was still in college and he was the head of the young Democrats of Southern California. Okay. So I left S. I've been there for 10 years. It's now 1980. The political campaign is going on. It was an election year. The conventions were being held. I happened to be at the time a Democrat. I'm certainly an independent now, but at that time I was a Democrat. And since he was the head of the Young Democrats, he said, hey, Marsh, you should do this while you're thinking about what you want to do next. This is before any Marsha Martin Productions LLC or anything, right? right? I just left S. So what am I going to do? I just, you know, ran a division with 5,000 people. I had millions of people have been enrolled in seminars. I produced events at the Cow Palace with 20,000 people. Everybody knew who I was. I mean, what am, what's my next act, right? Yeah. So Eric said, well, while you're thinking about it, why don't you go to the Democratic headquarters in Los Angeles and tell them that you're somebody and you can do something, right? And so I laughed at him. I said, what am I supposed to do? Just walk in and tell him here, I'm here? He says, yeah, pretty much. So I actually did. I went and I walked around and having run a huge organization and having done fundraisers and organized tens of thousands of people and groups and on missions and projects, I could tell these guys needed a lot of help. But you can't just come in off the street and say, I'm the chosen one and I'm going to help you. I have arrived. <laughs> so I went back to Eric. I said, and eh, that's not going to work because they need so much help. I'd have to redo the whole thing. And so I don't know. Can't do that. He said, oh, you're right. He says, you got to go to the head of the whole state. That's just Los Angeles. But the Democratic headquarters of all of California is in San Francisco. So again, I say, Eric, what are you talking about? He said, just go and show them your resume. Tell them what you can do. They need it. So I did the same thing. I went to San Francisco headquarters, which was all of California. And I walked in and I realized, same. no, nah, I don't think this is going to go over well. I'm not sure that the head of this thing is going to really be willing to say, I've arrived and I'm going to save him. <laughs> so, and it wasn't like I could come in and do a little job at a little desk. Yeah. I would be a disruptor. Let's just face it, right? Yes. So I go back and I tell Eric that also. So you know what he said? He said, oh, yeah, I should have thought of this in the first place. You need to go to Washington, D.C. and meet with the Democratic chairman, right? That's what I did, too. I laughed my ass off. I said, you're crazy. I said, Eric, what do you want me to do? Just get on a plane, fly to Washington, D.C., knock on the Democratic chairman's door and say, oh, here I am. Here's my resume. You need me? He says, yeah, pretty much. He says, I'm sure you'll figure it out. So here's the funniest part. I figure, what the hell? I've been, I've been trained for my whole life up to that point. I can do anything, right? Yeah. And I'm a little caught up with myself, which was part of the problem. Because I thought, well, I just need to be introduced to somebody. So I put the word out. If anybody has someone in politics they know that can help me, I'd appreciate an introduction. So I got one, but I didn't notice it was with a Republican congressman. <laughs> 
and I got this meeting, right? And I just waltz right into Washington, D.C., up to Congress and into this guy's office and sit down. I'm all excited for him to help me. And his secretary comes over and she says, Miss Martin, you know, the congressman is really excited to meet with you. You've been introduced by his friend, blah, blah, blah. And he would like to know what can he do for you today? What is the purpose of this meeting? And I, in my young naivete, knowing I can do anything, not even listening to what I'm saying, say to her, I'd like him to introduce me to the Democratic chairman so I can help the Democratic Party. And she just looked, I didn't quite notice it, but the girl practically peed right in front of me, right? And she was stuttering and said, okay. And so I continue reading my magazine while I'm waiting for the congressman. And then a bunch of people come out, about 20 people, and they're swirling around the office and something is happening and they leave the office and they're gone. And then a few minutes later, she comes out and she says, oh, I'm sorry, Miss Martin. The congressman had to go. (laughs) (laughs) He can't meet with you. (laughs) And at that moment, I realized, of course he went. I would have done the same thing. So I figured, okay, now I got to pull out all my guns. So I just looked at her and I say, that's fine. I can wait. And I looked back down at my magazine and totally ignored her. He tried to tell me again that he was gone and would not be back. And I looked back up at her another time and I said, that's fine. I can wait. And I (laughs) it was an immovable force. So what happened was it took about a half hour for her to take me under the tunnel to Congress from his Uh office. And I was sitting outside the back tunnel foyer to the room where you can get the door that goes into and you can see they're in a u-shaped form and some kind of hearing so i can see all of this i'm just sitting there on a table i don't know i just sat there you know in my beautiful dress and my gorgeous it's blonde hair and <laughs> i think i'm somebody i'm gonna watch this guy and i could see they took a note into him he read the note he got up out of the meeting he came out a bunch of reporters just grabbed him and started interviewing him and he could see me And I was just watching him at present time. I was just watching, oh, I wonder how he's going to deal with this. Mm, Okay, I wonder, getting my, the land. And he could see I'm watching him. I could see him watching me, watching him while he's being amassed by reporters and how he's handling that. And finally that went away. And so we met and we started talking and we walked all the way back to his office. Well, by the time we get back to his office, he says to the girl, he says, hold all my calls. (laughs) just bring us coffee and don't interrupt us and takes me into his room and we're there for another hour and by the time i left the office he said okay i'm going to do you a favor i'm going to introduce you to somebody that can get to the chairman he says but marcia if doesn't work out for you and they don't want you you come back here and i'm thinking of running for the senate next year and i'd love to have you help run my campaign (laughs) wow So that ended up in another funny story with me meeting with Robert Strauss, the ambassador to Egypt, Walter Mondale, who was the vice president at the time, and Chuck Manette, who was a financial chairman of the party who became the Democratic chairman. And I went to the 1980 convention with Manette and Mondale and Strauss, and I had the job of wearing the shortest skirt I could find and raising the most amount of money. (laughs) And I was one of three of Chuck Manette's team that helped raise money and organized his trip. And he became the chairman at that particular convention. And I had this badge I could get anywhere. And I went all the back smoke filled rooms, all of the big speeches, all on the, the assembly floor. And I got paid for it. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, Unbelievable. <laughs> You've worked with some of the most innovative minds in thought leadership, so I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions on what the difference is between an expert, regular leadership, and thought leadership. I think there's a thing called mastery, and I think mastery is in much bigger shades of gray and departments than just regular expert. You can't break it Mm -hmm. down that way. And I think mastery is about evolution. It's about experience. It's about understanding. It's about implementation, and that people on their journey in whatever ability that you're looking at that they have, whether it's leadership or something else, is along that particular evolution. And that evolution is about consciousness. And so I feel also things are relative. So when I look at my own work, I consider I'm a master. But also, when I look at some of my mentors, I don't feel I have yet I'm not the kind of master that Buckminster Fuller was. So I'm still in learning. 
So depending on where you're looking from, you could call me a master or you could call me a long master in training, a master in training, but mostly I'm a master. God damn it. (laughs) Own that shit. I love it. You've mentioned a few names. You've worked with some pretty heavy hitters in the thought leadership and personal development world. Jack Canfield, as you mentioned, Robert Kiyosaki, Tony Robbins, just to name a few. What would you say, or who would you say, sorry, are the top two or three people that you've worked with that have had the biggest impact on you in your life? I think the biggest impact was Werner Erhard. And then from there, Buckminster Fuller is right at the top. The guy was a genius and I was able to sit with him one day. We were in some kind of preschool along the way of him presenting to the graduates. And there were a bunch of three-year-olds on the floor playing. And he started talking to them about the geodesic dome and about synergistics. And you cannot believe it. Like he just talked to them. Like he looked at them. He talked to them. He, he you know, was right there with them. And they were spellbound. They were totally quiet and present and looking at him and spellbound. They took in everything he said. I thought, boy, we're making a bunch of engineers right now. I mean, <laughs> I can see it happening. So he was just brilliant. I think the part that I would say about my mentors is I was fortunate enough to have really human beings, people who were emotionally vulnerable and willing to share the good and the bad. And I think there's a lot of, in the transformational thought leadership industry right now, people have learned the technology and others have embodied the technology. And there are very few that have embodied it. Mostly are good actors, good performers. They can recite a poem, but they're not at the level of actually recreating and actually creating new fields. Buckminster Fuller was like that. Yeah. Werner was like that. Jerry Weintraub was like that in film. You help executives develop critical leadership skills. What do you consider to be a couple of the essential traits of a successful leader? Got to have followers. That's a skill in itself. I'm telling you. And followers are also leaders because that's one of the things I want to say about leadership is it's not that you're always at the front and it's not a title doesn't make you a leader. The fact that you are influential, that you can impact, that you can inspire makes you a leader. Love it. As a thought leadership trainer, what techniques do you teach executives to help them develop and communicate their unique perspectives and insights? I teach them at the very beginning to be present and to be aware. So to be present means you've got to start training your mind. Most people think their attention span is the responsibility of somebody else or something else. In other words, people will be here if it's interesting. Okay. That's the event being interesting enough to pull them into present time. Or if they agree with you, then they're willing to be present while you're sharing your point of view. That's that person's opinion. Again, point of view pulling you in. So Very few of us have trained ourselves to be present. We count on something or someone outside of ourselves to capture us and hold us Mm -hmm. for as long as they can. That's why when I do a speech or lead a training, I mean, people come up to me every time and say, I can't believe you had me 24 hours because they've never had that experience before because I know how to hold you. But I also need to teach you how to hold yourself. And that starts with your understanding that you have a choice if you're present and you can cause yourself to be present. And that means now you got to deal with your mind because your mind says, no fucking way can you do that. I'm going to take over. And that's the juvenile delinquent who has not been trained to have an attention span of more than 10 seconds, right? So you've got to get to the point where you can be present. That's one of the biggest things, I think, in developing a leader. Now, the other one is to be aware. Awareness is something other than being present. Awareness is what you notice as things are happening. So what... Most people notice is what's in front of them. 
Okay, they'll see how you respond, how you react, but they don't expand their awareness to consider what are the thoughts I'm thinking while this is going on? What are the sensations in my body as this is going on? When I have that thought or that sensation, what action do I automatically take? What are the patterns of behavior that I have? What is it that triggers me? What do I do when I get triggered? Those kinds of things are your ability to watch yourself while you're in action. That's why it's good to have a coach because usually you aren't diligent enough or disciplined enough to watch yourself in action. And so a coach watches you while you're in action and can give you feedback. But you have the capacity to observe yourself Mm -hmm. from a point of view of looking at yourself while you're acting, but you have to be willing to separate yourself from the thoughts, from the sensations. That's not you, that's thoughts you're having. Well, what thoughts do you have and when do they come up and are they triggered by this? And what are the sensations that go along with them? And what emotions do you call those sensations? And what actions do you take when you have those sensations that you call that emotion? That awareness is the thing that opens up more choices. And more choices then opens up your experience of practicing something. And practice is what trains the body. So you learn in two ways. You learn through your mind, which is understanding something. And you learn through your body, which is doing something. That's why we call it embodiment. So the only way you can learn a skill, whether it's leadership, speaking in front of a a group, pounding a nail into, is by practicing it for your body. You can understand how to ride a bicycle. Somebody can tell you and you can read a book on it. But when you get on the bicycle, all of a sudden your body goes, what? Yeah. How do I do this? I've read about it. It's different putting it into practice. You have to get balance. Once you get balance, you don't even need all those books. So that capacity to be present and to be aware opens up those choices for you to expand, try something new, and your ability to do it gives you more excellence and ability to be an expert at whatever it is you're doing. Love it. For leaders who are struggling to motivate their teams, what strategies do you recommend to help inspire and engage employees across all levels of the organization? I would say just acknowledge, acknowledge. Acknowledgement is your greatest leadership tool and it's your least expensive and it's the least used. People have a employee of the month, but that person will go for weeks without the head of the organization saying hello and knowing his name or her name or knowing anything about them and who they are at home right. or what their life is about or what they need because they haven't even taken the time to be in present time with that person and be interested enough to find out who they are and what's important to them. So that kind of being as a leader will allow you to have results from all the other things that you do with your people. They'll be willing to consider new thoughts or to try new ways of being or to try a new action because of the way you're being with them. Love it. Just full of insights. I love this, Marcia. This is amazing. <laughs> it's good. Such an incredible conversation. I'm learning so much. What would you say are the three most important lessons you've learned in your career as a coach? Oh, I think my lessons came from my experience. So I might say that I'm willing to experience the things that happen to me rather than protect myself. I'm willing to risk. So a lot of my experiences give me an understanding of what people go through when they go through feeling loss. And I think resilience, being able to get up because life is about getting up and getting knocked down and getting up and getting knocked down. And you hope you keep getting up because there's always going to be something that knocks you down, whether it's yourself or another person. That's how we learn is we have breakdowns and we have problems and we have challenges. So it's part of the process. So I would say learning to flow, learning that it's a gift, whatever's happening to me, that it should be happening, that I should welcome it, that I should not resist it if it's here for a purpose. And I should consider that I'm learning something as a result, even if I don't know what that is right now, instead of feeling sorry for myself or being a victim or all of those things to flow and know it's part of the process. This is a good thing and be grateful. That learning to be able to take a step back and look into the situation and realize that there is a lesson there. As difficult as it is, that's where the gold is. 
Mm -hmm. right? That's where all the lessons and the learning is being able to see that in the situation that there is a silver lining in every single situation that happens for us. Yeah. It's tough sometimes because a lot Mm -hmm. of things we learn from aren't easy to experience. And we have the range of emotions too. Mm -hmm. And some we need to be knocked around to get a bit to be woken up. Yeah, very true. Like, Sometimes okay. the pebbles don't, aren't enough. You need the two by four. Yeah, right. Like, oh, I got the first idea, but I didn't get it totally. So thanks for reminding me. Yeah, With a two by four to the back of the head. Yeah, yeah right. Because we get attached as human beings. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's true. one of the things that I'm willing also is to let go of my attachments and to recognize when I have attachments. and. Mm-hmm. Because once we get attached, then we think we have to have that, or we have to do that, or we are supposed to, or it's our right, or whatever. And a lot of times, the things we're attached to are exactly what we need to let go of to be able to move to the next level, right? Yeah. What inspires or lights you up the most about the work that you do, Marsha? Oh, I think just seeing people grow. I feel like I'm a gardener and... and Watering that seed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like I love growing people. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? Well, let's start with I'm an Aquarian. I don't know if you know much about astrology or how it all works. I'm an Aquarian too. I knew you were. I know. (laughs) So Aquarian is half Albert Schweitzer, half Mickey Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So I can see the humor in anything. So I'm willing to be wrong a lot of times. And also I can see the future. I can predict the future because I can hear a person's assumption because I've been trained to understand language and language exists in two ways. There's what you say, and there's also what you don't say, which has to be so for you to say what you said. So for example, when Christopher Columbus set off to discover the Americas, he went down to the dock to get on a boat and nobody in his family came with champagne and flowers and said bon voyage because language is content and the assumption is context. So the belief system at that time was that the earth is flat. There's a drop off. There's a big, after you drop off, you fall a long way and then you get eaten by a big, horrible monster, right? Yeah. So if that's the assumption, it's impossible to say bon voyage, have a great trip. And that's what we say now because we have a different assumption. So when you listen to people speak, if you're present enough and you hear how they form their words, you will be able to go backwards to figure out what's the assumption they have to be able to say that. And if you know that, you know where they're going so you can predict the future. I love it. Wow. You're dropping bombs, mic drop moments everywhere, Marsha. I love it. <laughs> How do you define success? What does that word mean to you? Oh, success. Don't you know the greatest poem of all time? Tell me. Here's what I call success. Okay. Ralph Waldo Emerson says this. What is success? And I love this because it's how I look at success also. To laugh often and much to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appropriation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to give of oneself, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to have played and laughed with enthusiasm and sung with exultation, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. Beautiful. I love it. I've never heard that poem before. It's a beautiful poem, and I usually read it in each of my seminars because Mm -hmm. I want people to know success isn't about money. It's not about power. It's not about what title you have. It's not about all of the things that you've gathered around in your life. And to tell you the truth, we can never get enough of what we really don't want. You know, you get all the cars and houses and money in your bank, and you're still not satisfied. Fulfilled. Fulfilled. So I think those kinds of things fulfill Mm -hmm. us. And that's to be successful. Beautiful. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before you learned it? And what was your life like after learning it? My life, it's funny because when we first started EST, there was a purpose of the training. And the purpose was to transform 
the way that you experience. So that just in the process of life itself, things clear up. And the word in there was transform. And for the longest time, people would raise their hands in the guest seminars and say, what does transformation mean? I've never heard that word before. What does it mean to transform? We don't think about that as even possible now because it's such a buzzword and you have it in everything, everywhere, all around you. But I do remember years of hands going up in the seminars asking me, what does transformation mean? And I asked Werner once what transformation meant because I had to answer the question. He says, oh, it's like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And so for years I said, it's like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Well, I didn't realize how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly for a lot of years. It's not a very nice process. It's very scary and dangerous. And the caterpillar has to deconstruct itself. doesn't change. A caterpillar's eyes aren't a butterfly's eyes. I always thought, well, a caterpillar legs are a butterfly's wings. No, the caterpillar deconstructs totally into a soup, goes back to its primordial kind of essence of whatever creation comes from and reconstitutes itself into a new species. Holy shit, right? So I realized one day that another thing we used to say is it's the last quarter of an inch. Everybody's so fulfilled. You know, you can never get enough of what you really don't want. So you get everything and everything and it still doesn't fulfill you. It's the last quarter of an inch that's missing, right? Mm -hmm. What is that? Well, I would tell people it's the last quarter of an inch as if I didn't even experienced enough life to have the first 11 inches of it, <laughs> right? I didn't even know what I was talking about. I was 20. I was 21. I was like, I hadn't had any breakdowns. I hadn't lost all my money yet. I hadn't been betrayed by a friend. I hadn't gotten a divorce. My stepchild didn't commit suicide yet. All of those things that happened later in my life that were the things that usually were the breakdown that would cause people to wake up happened in reverse for me. I got the waking up first. I just happened to get waking up first. The breakdowns didn't cause my waking up. I got woken up first. You're already awake. I'm awake. That's, you know, I was ready to be wakened and got woken. And here I am awake. And then life happened. So for me, the process has been, it wasn't that something happened that made me learn. It was that I already learned. And then when it happened, I observed it differently so that I could know what was going on. It didn't prepared. Yeah, not only better prepared, it was a different experience. And it wasn't that it wasn't horrible. No. When I got a divorce, it was very painful. When my young, beautiful stepson committed suicide, it was just horrendous. But there's always been, since I'm a small child, an observer watching that was who I really am, not the thing I'm pretending to be or acting out. And so I just feel I got life in reverse. You know, I get to wake up and then apply it to all the stuff that's happening. Most yeah. people to have all the stuff that happens and then wake up. Then wake up. What does the word empowerment mean to you? Empowerment means giving power to someone else to allow them to be bigger than they are, allow them to have power to choose, allow them to develop, allow them to have their own point of view. It's acknowledging that someone else is connected to the great source, whatever you call that source, and that flows through them the wisdom of the universe and that how they see it and their perspective and the way they're living their life is a very necessary part of the whole piece. And so I think empowerment is recognizing and realizing someone else is the same as you. We're all that big. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be one, two, three word answer type thing, okay? Good. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Interested. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Joy. What is one thing that you love about yourself that is not related to your physical appearance? Consciousness. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Wisdom. What is one thing you want but cannot buy with money? I don't want anything, and money doesn't buy much. If you're writing your autobiography, what would the title be? Sex, Drugs, and Transformation. <laughs> that concludes and our fire section. I have trademarked it, too. <laughs> have you? Oh, yes. I love it. That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is something surprising you've learned about yourself in the last year? 
I've learned that it's really okay not to have a man. More interesting, actually. <laughs> well, now I'm ready for a man. At least I know that about myself, that it's not something that's needed. You know, yeah, a, it's a want, it's not a need. Yeah, a fish doesn't need a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> if you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? Oh, I would like to talk with Michelle Obama because she is elegant, savvy, fun, interesting, made a difference, and comes from a point of view in terms of being a black woman that I've never experienced. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Don't put on the extra 10 pounds because it's really hard to take it off. <laughs> Lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your tribe, your corner of the world, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? I don't know that I would have words. Somehow it sounds more like sounds in nature. Marsha, thank you so much for taking and making the time to be here with me today and sharing your stories, your knowledge, your wisdom that you have gleaned over the years of your career and all the people that you've come in touch with. I'm so grateful to be connected to you and to have had this opportunity to sit down and share in your journey with you and your story. I appreciate you and I'm so grateful for the time that you spent with me. Thank you so much. And thank you so much. It's a really great service that you do to find the conversations that matter to others and to bring them forth into the world. And I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That means the world to me. I appreciate you, Marcia. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Marcia Martin. She is a prolific influencer, the CEO and executive trainer of Marcia Martin Productions, LLC, and an executive and life coach. Thank you so much, Marcia. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.